Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Partridge. In today's episode, I talk to Associate Professor of Occupational Psychology at the University of Greenwich, Dr. Calvin Burns. In this fascinating conversation, Calvin and I debate the distinction between trust and faith. He outlines the five major markers that determine risky behaviour, and we examine what our automatically activated or implicit attitudes tell us about our pre-conscious beliefs. Please join me as we look at life through a different lens. Okay, hello, hello and welcome, Calvin. It is so wonderful to have you here. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you, Caroline. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, fantastic. So now, the first time I heard you speak was at um, an introductory talk at Greenwich University and you were talking about risk or the psychology of risk, I suppose, risk and trust. Now, um, and that obviously really piqued my interest, and yeah. um, and that's why you're here, um, uh, because you talked about risk perception as well, and I just think it's uh, a really interesting topic, and also in terms of you know we did we did a test yeah. <laughs> as well because because I was like it, that was great I was like oh my god am I a uh, uh, you know a risk averse person I yeah. know I'm not a risk averse person I know I, I I take risks yeah um and that's part of my nature but sort of delving in deep more deeply into that I thought wow this is a really great uh subject to to look at hmm. but um but before we go into the the ins and outs of risk I'd really like to ask you about what first drew you to psychology to the discipline and what first drew you to and and how you you got to this point and how you got to you know studying risk and trust it's yeah. a big question <laughs> yeah um that's you know so it, it is rather surreal um i'm originally from canada and some days I wake up and think, here I am living in London, England, and how the hell did I get here? It's, um, um, there was no grand plan, really. It, it's, I, I grew up in the 80s, and I was always interested in kind of sciencey things and experiments and just kind of trying to figure out why things work and what happens if I do this um, and there was an explosion of research in the in the, in the 1980s and 1990s in um, in brain science more, more or less and I, re- I remember my parents took me to um, Hamilton Place it was our local exhibition center and there was um, an exhibit it was probably from the Royal Ontario Museum and um, I remember seeing this brain. It was, you know, half a brain, really, in a jar. Um, and I was really just quite captivated. I mean, I, I was really just quite kind of captivated by that, by just seeing this half a brain in a jar and thinking, well, this is what kind of makes it all work. 
Um, and, and I was interested in, you know, growing up, you know, I think, you know, as a little boy, what, what, what do I want to be? I, I thought I, I thought I would do something sciencey. I, 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 you know, I, I didn't really know what, what university careers were about, but, you know, it's, I, I thought I'd end up in medicine being a doctor or, or I, I thought maybe a brain surgeon, um, because on TV, um, on Canadian TV, um, there, there were little blips uh, or little adverts talking about Canadian heritage and culture. And, and, and at that time, um, we, we saw a lot about Wilder Penfield, who was uh, a Canadian neuro, um, a, a neurosurgeon or brain surgeon. Um, I think he was based at McGill in, in Montreal. And they, they showed, as part of these clips, they showed him, you know, performing or an actor performing brain surgery on uh, on a lady who was having epileptic seizures. And then they showed how he would probe this, this woman who was awake during brain surgery, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, probe with electrical stimulation to, um, to kind of find where, you know, the, the the area of the brain that was causing the, the the seizures and I remember that this lady said she would smell burnt toast every time she was about to have this epileptic seizure and so he went around poking her brain I, I don't want to say quite blindly but you know <laughs> methodically um, and saying oh oh what do you feel now and what do you feel now and she was saying oh have you poured cold water on my hand Dr. Penfield and then then finally she says oh Dr. Penfield I, I smell burnt toast and he says ah okay and so um and so i guess he cut out that part of the brain and to stop her uh to stop her seizures um um but it, it was you know he was he was uh um he kind of drew the map or was really influential in in uh mapping the human brain you know, and, and and through through high school, I you know I studied. I did all the sciencey type subjects and studied biology. And when I went into you know in, in Canada or North America, you don't go into medical school from high school. You have to do a four year degree first. So I went into first year natural sciences at McMaster University, um, and psychology was one of the options. Um, and I just kind of knew, yeah, I'm taking psychology. And um, so I see, so I, I kind of enrolled in the uh, natural sciences first year. And then second year, you start to specialize. I was going to do biology and psychology. But after first year psychology as an elective, I was like, no, I'm doing this. And um, I, I thought, I, you know, I, I was going to go down more of the brain and behavior uh, pathway, um, which is what we call today uh, neuropsychology. Um, and I did a clinical internship in that in my third year. Um, but I just, I, I, I kind of got more into the research end of things with, uh, decision-making, um, in my senior year, my, my fourth year dissertation project. Um, and it was almost for lack of anything better to do that I kind of Woke up one day and thought, now I'm going to go to England for a year and do a mm -hmm. do this one year master's degree and then see what happens after that. Um, and I more or less came over here and never left. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> um, and and how long has that been now? How many years have you been oh, here? That's been about twenty five years now. So um, wow, so, wow. Yeah. So wow. um, Canada's Canada's loss is that game. 
It, so, yeah, um... <laughs> well, no, thank you. It's, um, it, it's yeah, so yeah, I, I built a life here um, in, in, in the UK and um, I'll probably spend the rest of my working life here. So it's, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And thank you. That's, re- that's so interesting. I really loved what you said. So it's that inciting incident, isn't it? Mm. It's when you that that suddenly sparks something in a young mind, mm. you know, and, and and it was your curiosity about how the about how the brain works and about how we work and yeah. how we and how we make decisions. Um and so your research has taken you to so well, you talked when we talked earlier, you talked about um implicit attitudes and automatic attitudes yeah. and 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 risk-taking behavior so so um what came first in terms of your research was it looking at implicit attitudes and can you explain for people who are listening yeah what that means yeah um again i just kind of fell into that rather haphazardly it's um uh, as part of my master's degree or my master's thesis, I, you know, I was I was still doing more brain and behavior things. So I was looking at um, uh, cognitive tests um, of, for stroke victims. Um, so so trying to figure out what can normal, healthy, elderly adults do in terms of cognitive functions. Um, you know, memory tests, and not, not quite seeing if they put the square peg in the round hole, but it, it's, um, uh, I, I did, you know, I, I tested a, a, a large, um, a large number of elderly, healthy people, um, but we were using computerized tests. So this was, again, the, the, the late 1990s. Um, and, uh, it, it was um, um, it was it was kind of at that time that I was thought yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of do this I'm gonna do a PhD and do do kind of a um, um, uh, more more of a, a research career and mm. I it was I guess in my interest in kind of computerized testing that kind of led me into or that I found out about the, this idea of implicit attitudes or automatically activated attitudes because they're um, they're measured by using a, a computerized task. Um, so normally when when people are, when we measure people's attitudes or perceptions, traditionally we, we've given out a questionnaire, a pencil and paper questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, today everything is online, but you know, mm-hmm. a paper, paper and pencil questionnaire, and you circle, you know, I like chocolate ice cream. You know, on a scale of one to five, do you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. strongly disagree to strongly agree? Um, but the the idea with implicit attitudes is that they are preconscious or automatically activated. Um, so when you when you answer a question like "I like chocolate ice cream," you're you're consciously deliberating um, about your attitude towards chocolate ice cream and then giving an answer. Um, but with implicit or automatically activated attitudes you're giving a response 
before you've had a chance to consciously consider what you consciously think about uh, um, chocolate ice cream. So the, the idea is that um, you make key press responses on a keyboard or some other kind of device and you do it under speeded conditions. So word, so images and words come on a screen very, very quickly and you have to very quickly, you know, uh, make a judgment. Um, yeah. So usually but what you're, you're primed with with something. Um, yeah, so it doesn't give you the opportunity to think. It doesn't give the opportunity conscious decision making. That's it. You have yeah. To yeah. Yeah. That that's yeah. it. So um and so we we are um so it was it was it was that way that I got into um you know I, I kind of drifted from more of the harder side of psychology, more of the brain and behavior through kind of computerized testing and psychological assessment or psychometrics mm-hmm. into um, into this idea of implicit attitudes. And it just kind of really fascinated me about that we could perhaps measure things that were going on in our brain that we weren't consciously aware of. And I thought, how cool is that? It's just... Um, well, it, well, it is cool and it's actually amazing because there are. I, I personally think that, you know, we are we receive a lot of programming throughout our very early years oh, that yeah. we that we receive unconsciously yeah. and that programming does obviously affect our automatic attitudes yeah. whether we you know whether we like it or not because when you talked about uh, people filling in questionnaires when mm-hmm. we had an early conversation and you talked about people filling in questionnaires a lot of the time when people have a conscious you know they have time to decide they don't answer particularly honestly yeah. or they're not aware that they're answering uh, honestly. And so this speed, as you say, the speed of kind of hit tapping a, a key to respond to something um, really illustrates things that may be, you know, attitudes that may be that you that are, are holding that you're not even aware yeah. of. yeah. Um, that, that, that's it. it. It's, we internalize a lot through in our early, early years, but through, through, throughout our whole life, perhaps some, some beliefs become so internalized or so deeply held that we don't even question them anymore. And, but I mean, that, that's how brains work. That's how we're able to function in, you know, if we had to question everything that we, you know, that, that we encountered um, in life, we would never get anything done. We have deeply held beliefs um, that, that shape the way we perceive the outside world and the way in which we behave towards the outside world. The extent to which those those attitudes can be changed is is still a you know a, um, an area of debate. In terms of the research and how that research is used, what did you focus on? What was your focus? Oh, yeah, so I I and this was largely driven by the money, um, <laughs> as, as, as as things are in in, in research. It was. Um, um, uh, I, for my PhD, I was funded by Shell Exploration and Production, um, you know, the, the oil and gas company um, up in Aberdeen um, in Scotland. And uh, it was uh, 
So, so I a PhD scholarship uh, sponsored by Shell and the University of Aberdeen to look at implicit attitudes about trust uh, or automatically attitude, uh, automatically activated attitudes about trust and how that affects um, occupational safety or, or, or safety culture um, in the, the UK oil and gas industry. Um, because what's, what many organizations do is they conduct attitude surveys of their workforce about uh, the workforce's attitudes and perceptions about about risk and safety. So we we call these we call these safety climate surveys. I mean they, they kind of give you and uh, you know if if your workforce has poor attitudes about communication or think that communication uh, uh, within the organization is particularly bad or particularly bad at shift changeovers or something like this. Well, that might point to. Um, you might uh, that might point to an area where the the organization or managers in the organization need to do something to improve communication to prevent you know accidents or incidents from happening. Um, but as we we kind of said before, or you alluded to before, that when people fill out questionnaires, attitudes or perception questionnaires, they they might not be entirely honest. And it's not to say that they're lying, but it's they mm. give they give socially desirable responses. Um, mm. So if we're looking at something like trust, um, trust in your line manager, trust in the senior managers of the company, trust in your coworkers to follow safety mm. rules, um, people may give overestimates or slightly more positive estimates of their attitudes and perceptions about trust in other people. And they might do that for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, one might be that, you know, if you say you don't trust somebody else, well, that might signal that you yourself are not a very trusting person, or you might be an untrusting person. Everybody wants to maintain a, you know, a positive self-image. So, And again, I, that's interesting, isn't it? How our perception of other people perceiving us yes yeah <laughs> affects our behavior yeah. yeah even though when when even though when when workers or people in general population might fill out attitude surveys we say look this we don't need your we don't need your name on this survey we're not going to be we're not you're not going to be able to be identified in any way shape or form but the you know the the simple the simple act of kind of considering your attitude towards other people kind of um, still still affects well your sense of self. So, yeah, um, so yeah. that that's that's where perhaps or uh, I thought maybe implicit measures of attitudes um, or the, these automatically activated, uh, or measures of automatically activated attitudes would give us maybe more predictive power in terms of trying to explain, um, how and why workers perceive risk, how and why they, um, uh, engage in risk-taking behaviors. So, because psychology is really, or psychology for me now is more about, um, trying to predict and explain human behavior. So, okay, mm -hmm. so for me, it's trying to predict and explain human behavior in uh, work settings or, or organizations. So, mm -hmm. um, and so this was all 
uh, th again, this was the late 1990s, early 2000s. So this was post Piper Alpha, uh, the Piper Alpha disaster yeah. um, uh, uh, up in Scotland. Um, so this was this was part of kind of the what was going on in the oil and gas industry was yeah. the uh, step change in step change in safety. So they were focusing on behavioral safety. Um, mm. Because with Piper Alpha, there was a huge explosion, wasn't yeah. there? And lots yeah. of, yeah, yeah. Just for people listening yeah. who may not Yeah, know. so it was the worst industrial accident in the UK at the time. I think uh, I think it was uh, 167 men died. Um, and, and the men who survived did the exact opposite of what they were trained to do. The, the safety training said when the, the alarm went off, you were supposed to assemble in the galley and wait for further instructions. Um, and the men who did that, unfortunately, died of smoke inhalation or were burned to death because, well, when the installation lost power, they weren't mm. you know, able to uh, receive um, further instructions over the tannoy or, or the, the public announcement system. Um, the men who survived jumped off of the platform in the middle of the night, you know, hundreds of feet into the freezing cold North Sea and just kind of hope for the best. Um, and, and that, and to me, that is the incredible thing because something else takes over yeah. and and motivates us to behave in a, in a different way. And what you said, and there are, there have been lots of stories mm. like that, which have said, um, you know, uh, uh, which have illustrated that people doing exactly the opposite of what they've been told mm. resulted in their survival yeah. as opposed to, yeah. uh, you know, staying put. Yeah. I mean, I can think of lots of things. And the most recent one is Grenfell, you know, yeah. uh, which yeah. is an incredible tragedies in yep. you know awful um and and so that is the fascinating and, uh, and remarkable thing really about how humans behave and and, and what kicks in what yeah. does kick in it's a survival yeah. uh primal survival sense of survival yeah. how am i going to survive i'm not going to go i yeah. mean you know, to 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 go to the galley and just stay put in a burning bill in a burning, yeah. it's nuts. Yeah. It really, yeah. it, uh, but, and again, that then points to, were those were those poor unfortunate men that did that? Were they that were they so conditioned? Was their conditioning? Well, that's it. That that, that was the training, and that's it. it, it it's yeah. I guess the question would be like, well, they must have trusted. You know the systems. Yeah. I must have trusted the company and the the management to to look out for their safety, and they they yeah. they followed the safety. They followed their safety training. Um, um, and so that really, then it really, really amplifies and and illustrates that trust is the underlying factor here. Yeah. And also what I loved when we were having a conversation earlier, you said trust exists because of uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's so, it, I mean, if we could, it trust, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, I suppose we could call it a psychological phenomenon. I mean, if mm -hmm. we can, if we could predict what's going to happen next year or, tomorrow or even in five minutes with perfect certainty, we 
we wouldn't need to trust anyone or anything because we would just know what's going to happen. But mm. we don't. We you know we 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 can't predict um, the future. So we have to in in different situations we have to rely on or make ourselves vulnerable to to others and. Mm. Um, uh, it, it, it's quite an adaptive mechanism for uh, uh, for, for, for for humans. Um, well, it's uh, and also when you were talking there, it just made me think trust. And um, where does that cross over into faith? Uh, you know, what people have, and how do you quantify that? Is faith something that you can quantify? Is that something that is because because. It's interesting if you think of those men that that jumped mm. and survived. Did they were they were they compelled to do that because their inner voice yeah. said, "Look, the only way that you're going to survive is if you get off this yeah. burning, you know, disaster." And and the ones that survived, did they did they have the faith yeah. that they were going? Because when we talk about faith, it's our minds automatically go to religion, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do how how would you describe the 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 line between trust and faith? Oh, I know that's a hard one, isn't it? It's a hard in terms of in terms of research because people don't research faith, or do they? Yeah. When yeah, when I th- sometimes we hear the the phrases you know, trust in God and faith in God used mm. kind of interchangeably. Mm. I like to keep the two kind of separate. Um, mm. I might have faith in God. Um, I don't know that well. I don't like to yeah, say it, I trust it, God because it's trust. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it involves a bit of questioning and and it's and I can't fathom, you know, yeah how well, God works or how the universe is. So I, I just kind exactly. of, I'm quite happy to have faith and not question things. Whereas for yeah. me, trust involves, trust involves a bit of active questioning because there is, there is vulnerability here. There is a chance that things are going to go wrong. Um, there, you know, um, so trust, th- th- this is where, where, where the implicit attitudes uh, are, are kind of, to me, interesting because trust can be kind of cognitive. We can kind of just say, mm. "Okay, I'm I am going to trust you in this situation to do this," and we kind of it's kind of called calculus-based trust. We kind of do more or less some kind of risk assessment to kind of say, uh, "Yeah, whether or not you know um, by me taking a risk, something something beneficial is going to happen for me," whereas. Mm. Um, automatically activated attitudes are are just that they're 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 act activated automatically without that kind of conscious reasoning. So, um, uh, and that that's kind of where I'm trying to work out the relationship between these these kind of implicit or automatically activated attitudes about trust and kind of consciously reasoned attitudes about trust mm-hmm. um, and I think it's probably going to be more of some kind of additive effect because you know any kind of when we're trying to predict 
human behavior, most behaviors that we try to predict are kind of consciously controlled, but everything is activated in our minds kind of automatically. And it's just kind of what, what reaches conscious awareness. So it's, I think kind of, there's going to be some kind of additive effect between the kind of automatically activated attitude and our consciously evaluated uh, or consciously controlled attitude uh, um, is then going to kind of shape uh, um, shape uh, shape behavior, whether that that's has to do with you know engaging in trusting behavior or risk taking behavior. So mm, mm, it's fa- it's really <laughs> yeah. it's really yeah. fascinating. And and in terms how how would research be used in terms of um the uncovering i suppose is the best word i can think of in in covering uh implicit attitudes Hmm. um where and how is that used yeah um right now there uh harvard university has a interesting website called Project Implicit, and you can go online and complete, well, they call them implicit association tests. Now, there's a whole bunch of different ways that we can measure automatically activated attitudes, and academics can get, well, rather academic about these things. I don't, I'm not a big fan of the IAT, or implicit association test. It's partly because it gets an effect, but nobody really I don't think there's a very naturalistic explanation for why we get the effect that we do. Um, I'm I'm more interested, or I, I use priming measures where we show we show very quickly people uh, a picture of something. Uh, we we prime them with something, and then we ask them to make a decision about um, uh, 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 something else. So we, you know, we might show you pictures. I mean, the, the classic example is kind of uh, comes from kind of um, prejudice and and, and racial mm. discrimination. So you know, I might I might show you a picture of, uh, let's say, a, a white person, and then I have to make a decision about, let's say, um, uh, a word like honest. I have to say, oh, does honest have to do with trust or distrust? And I, I would say, okay, honest has to do with trust. So I would pre- press a, a key labeled trust. So, but yeah, I mean, this would be done very quickly. And then maybe on another trial, I would see um, a picture of a black person. And then I would, you know, um, uh, have the, uh, 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 following that very quickly, I would see the word honest. And I would have to, again, judge the meaning of the word honest as having to do with trust or distrust. Now, if I had mm-hmm. um, negative implicit or negative uh, pre-conscious associations towards black people, well, then I would be able to judge the word honest as having to do with trust um, mm. quicker than I uh, uh, w- when primed with the face of a, or picture of a white person than, um, mm. than I would uh, when primed with the picture of a black person. And I might, well, I probably have done an implicit association test or or, or, uh, or uh, uh, an implicit attitude test about uh, racial attitudes, but it's been probably years ago. What do these measures mean? It's, you know, humans evolved in groups. We evolved to trust people who are like us, who look like us. I mean, that was, yeah. that was, that was the, the, 
perhaps the big driving factor. If you look like me, you are probably going to behave like me. Um, and, and therefore I'll survive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a multicultural society like today, we've, you know, London, everybody's from somewhere. Yeah, everybody's from somewhere else. You know, if we were trying to build trust um, and positive attitudes in a kind of a multicultural or multiracial society, I guess we, you know, we, we should try to focus on things like value similarity. But I mean, values yeah. are not something you can't just look at somebody and tell what their values are. Yeah. It's, you have yeah. to interact with somebody. Um, so, um, so, I mean, that, that is, it's a gray area then, but it is is a really gray area because as you say that it's not as simple as somebody hitting something and kind of then the outcome being, oh, well, you responded more negatively towards a particular, uh, you know, a person of a particular race because, further back possibly i mean yeah that person may be racist but also yeah. they may be just survivalist yeah. <laughs> you know deep yeah. deep rooted in them so that's a, i've i've kind of not thought of it like that before that's that's actually yeah a really interesting way to perceive yeah. that that test yeah or um, or it could be i mean there could be an emotional component to it that it's just that yeah. you um uh you know uh, we are somehow hardwired, and, and I don't know that this is true, but I mean, it may be that we are hardwired um, from our DNA to uh, develop more positive emotions um, and associations between people who look like us as as some kind of survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what these these implicit measures are are picking up on. Uh, yeah, but the. Yeah, <laughs> It would be interesting to do those tests with very, very young children, actually. That's yes, it would, wouldn't it? It's to see. I mean, that would be that would that would be a way of trying to unpick the the nature nurture debate in in, in yeah. all of this. And I don't know that that is being done. Um, because the not... whole ethical minefield in terms of doing research with children, but that um, would be that would be really quite interesting. Um, because because you do see a lot of kids when they're asked, so, you know, can you what are the differences between you and your friend? And their friend yeah. may be black or Asian or whatever. They'll just say, oh, they're taller than me. Yeah. yeah. Or they or the you know they their 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 whole perception is it seems to be more rooted mm. in terms of uh, an uh, emotional uh, connection yeah. as opposed to in terms of what they've learnt and been fed by, again, uh, you know, n- nurture, yeah. um, uh, what they've, what they've learnt and they've been fed by everyone and everything yeah. around them. Yeah. about how they should react to certain people yeah um so yeah that's actually yeah. fascinating it just suddenly made me think well why don't they well, <laughs> you know, I, given I, me a whole bunch of ideas because a lot of the ways i you know I, i've been measuring you know implicit attitudes is that they are very language-based we're we're, we're usually asking people to judge the meaning of a word after seeing a prime um the way to do it with children would have to be because children are still learning how to read um, and it would just kind of scupper 
the results, but I mean, we'd, we'd have to use kind of pictures um, uh, and, and that would be, that would then be maybe more of um, uh, a way of measuring emotional responses. But I mean, that, that gets into kind of the next, wh where is this all going? And it's the, um, uh, so much well, in, uh, in, in decision-making research, um, which which is kind of related to to kind of risk perception, we're looking at uh, you know how does risk perception affect decision making, or uh, how does trust affect decision making, and it, it's the the emotional aspect. And well, how do we measure emotion? Again, you know, if we use a questionnaire, well, you're kind of consciously deliberating on well, how did I feel, or how do I feel, and it kind of muddies the water. So we need uh, so we could use physiological measures. We we could use. Uh, measures of, of people's heart rate or or respiration or galvanic skin responses. Um, but for me, that I, I want to see what's going on in the brain. And uh, yeah. <laughs> we are limited by, we are slightly limited by technology. Um, I mean, we, we can measure EEGs and electrical activity, but um, fMRI, it's functional magnetic resonance imaging, it's very good, but it's still a bit crude for what I would like to do. It, it, it measures blood flow to different areas of the brain. So we can give people decision-making tasks and see which parts of the brain light up. Light up yeah. um, but really right now we can, yeah, it, it, it's not sufficiently sensitive to be able to distinguish between individual differences. We, we could kind of tell, you know, if you've had a stroke or some other kind of acquired brain injury, we can mm -hmm. use that technology to kind of say, yeah, that part's not working anymore. Um, and there's not mm -hmm. much we can do for you. Um, that, 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 that's about it. But mm -hmm. it's, that's where, that's what kind of, I hope to see in my lifetime, um, some way that we could um, measure in more fine-grained detail kind of what's going on in the brain um, and how we're able to, um, well, distinguish between, I guess, people who make different decisions or have different attitudes to kind of find mm -hmm. out how it, how is it all working? That's... Uh, mm -hmm. that, and that is, <laughs> that is a big question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. But how, yeah. how does it work? Yeah. How is it all working? How do we what? And I suppose it's what makes us what makes the individual the individual. Well, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what that's what really keeps me. You know, that's that's what really kind of keeps me going, or kind of keeps me interested. It, it's kind mm -hmm. of um, there's always there's always something. That, there's always an interesting question to kind of answer that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Excellent. Oh, Calvin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much because um, I, I think that is what I was going to ask you lots more questions yeah. about risk taking behavior. And I think I will actually, yeah. if you okay. don't mind, because yeah, suddenly yeah. it felt yeah. like a natural end. And then I just yeah. thought, actually, there are certain things that I'd like to ask you about um risk and perception because 
we we briefly kind of uh, talked a, a little bit about risk, but in terms of you 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 talked about um, uh, how how do we how do we determine what risky behaviour is? Mm. How do we determine uh, if we are risk takers? Yeah. Is there a scale? Is yeah. there? Yeah, there's. Um, um, uh, yeah, pers- personality tests are usually the the way that uh, uh, they would be done. So if let's say if, if you had a bit of money and you went to a financial planner to kind of uh, and said, here, I have a million pounds, I want you to invest it for me, that financial planner would probably give you a short questionnaire yeah, and say, well, you know, I want I want to kind of find out how comfortable you are with 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 risk, because anytime you invest money, there's a chance that you're going to earn money, but you're going to lose money. So, uh, you know, a financial planner or a reputable one will say, well, look, I can pretty much, uh, you know, we we can go for very low risk stuff, which is basically essentially akin to putting money in the bank and just getting whatever the bank or, uh, or, uh, or Bank of England is, is offering, or we could, you know, kind of do something really risky. Um, so you might earn a billion dollars, but you might lose it all. So uh, so um, uh, there, there's one, um, there's, there's lots of different measures uh, of personality and lots of different personality factors. Uh, there's, you know, uh, some models are the 16 personality factor, 32 personality factor, um, but many, uh, uh, many models are just kind of based on five factors today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the big one in psychology is called the big five, um, five factors. Uh, but for risk, there was uh, one that's been uh, developed by a chap called Zuckerman. And mm-hmm. um, he talks about um, uh, five factors where he's identified kind of uh, impulsive sensation seeking, neuroticism, aggression, extroversion and activity as mm-hmm. five five dimensions of personality which are related to people's risk-taking behaviors um, and so that that's how we would kind of profile um, uh, someone to kind of find out um, their general predisposition to risk but the the thing with risk is, though, it is kind of domain specific. Um, you know, I might be um, well. I, I, I'm I'm not a smoker. It's um, so I, you know, I and I might not smoke because I think that's a really risky behavior for for health. But I might be a financial risk taker. I might be willing to say, "Oh yeah, here's here's my pension pot." You know, you know put it <laughs> yeah, or something. Let 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 Leon, let's roll the dice and see what happens. Or you know, let let's take yeah. it all, go to Vegas and bet on bet on black and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so so people can be risk takers in one domain, but very very risk averse in another domain. So. Mm. Um, uh, but of course, you know, in, in, with, 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 uh, within financial investments would be looking at, you know, your, your, uh, your, whether you're a risk averse or a risk taker with respect to, um, f- financial risk. So, yeah. Yeah. But I, I think what you said there about it being domain kind of domain specific, specific yeah, is, um, 
a really important thing because I've always thought to myself, actually, yeah, I'm really, you know, I'm really quite a high risk taker in lots of things because I, I I'm one of those people that I think, you know, my acting kind of background, uh, that, that's quite a risky career. Yeah. But also, but also um, I say yes to a lot of things. Mm. People will say, what about this? And I'll say, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> you know, and I think there's a there's an impulsivity yeah. um, uh, about the um, about the way I respond to things. Mm. And I think so. Is there a measure of it, how impulsive people are? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that, that's part of. Uh, um, uh, um, many uh, or, or most most. Uh, of the kind of five-factor model personalities include some kind of measure of Im- impulsivity because it is such um, uh, a strong correlate of, of behavior, or it, it's a way that we can differentiate um, um, uh, b- between people. Um, but one, one of the things that I, I mean, I look at... You, I th- think of people who do kind of extreme sports, um, like maybe going climbing um, El Capitan, that that big uh, in the United States, that yeah. big. Uh, I think it's in Yosemite, or mm. Yosemite. it's one one of those state parks in California where where people climb this rock face with their bare hands, and you think you idiot, you know, you, 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 you're what are idiot. you doing? I mean, you, you, you would say you are clearly a stupid risk taker, but actually those people, people who can do that and live are actually very intelligent risk takers. They, they know what their physical limits are. They know what they can and cannot do. Um, so and again, actually, that goes back to trust. It, it does. Yeah. They, 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 they train um, and they, um uh they're very, they're very they're usually very self-aware and um uh have a high level of self-efficacy so so they they know what they can and can't do um and if they think they can't do something then they're not you know they're 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 not they're not going to do it um so those those types of people aren't very i mean they're engaging in what we want to say extreme sports or high risk activities but mm-hmm. they tend not to be um very impulsive they're um uh, they might be a bit sensation seeking um but when when they're actually doing the activity they're um uh, they're they're not just kind of well, let's do this and see what happens and hope for the best. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't done any training for a year, but yeah. let's give it a whirl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and so these risk, uh, so the risk taking behavior kind of assessments are they used by employers to? Yeah. Is that? Is that an ethical thing that employees can do, or is well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know that it's used. Uh, I mean, when when I first when I finished my PhD and was looking for a job, and this was back in two thousand and three, I, I applied for. Um, this was before I got my first, you know, lectureship or uh, academic faculty post. I, I was looking. I, I thought I'd end up in industry. Um, so I applied to a few banks, um, 
in kind of the the human resources department looking at mm. uh um you know talking you know i was trying to say well we you know, we, we could develop measures to profile investment bankers risk taking behaviors and um, I remember feedback. I, I didn't get the job. It's, it's partly mm. why I just kind of ended up just never really left the university. But I remember I got feedback from one uh, one bank. And I can't. Re- I really can't remember which one. I think it might have been something like Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, mm. Just to say, oh well, we're not really interested in uh, in, in in how people evaluate risk. And I thought, oh, that's a bit silly. Um, and so I felt very validated in 2008 when the, um, you know, the banks kind of collapsed due to excessive risk taking, especially in Royal Bank of Scotland, um, and the UK government needed to recapitalize them. So, um, uh, yeah, it shows you that actually in those circumstances, it's, hmm. it's really important yeah. to have uh, people who's, who... Again, I suppose it's this balance, isn't it? That a balance between between risk taking and trust, yeah. and also common sense. <laughs> well, that's it. But it it also goes back. It goes. It it it's more than just the individual, though. So I mean, yeah, we do want to. Um, I. It, it, it's more about the culture of risk taking in the organization. So if you think if you're an investment banker and you think you're going to get rewarded for you know um, making some risky investments that have a high chance of paying off, or, or that 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 might not have a high chance of paying off, um, but if you know if it does pay off, you're you're you know you're, you're going to have this high flying career and get all this commission and bonuses. Um, and if the culture is uh, conducive um, to to that that kind of behavior. Well, then you're 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 going to see lots of investment bankers engaging in um, perhaps risky decisions. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's permissible. So it, it, it's also about the kind of the, the culture that exists with within organizations that um, uh, promote and reward risk risk taking behavior. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it, it does make me think, actually, when you're talking there, it makes me think of, and I know we mentioned this in a, a previous conversation of, of the book by Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. Blink, yeah. which is the which is the art of knowing without knowing yeah. mm. again. And that's, I suppose, this, I suppose leads us back to automatic attitude. Mm. No, before before any any kind of conscious uh decision making kicks in you have a, a feeling a call for people say i feel it in my gut yeah, yeah. i've got a gut feeling about this and they're right you know yeah. and that does have that book has some incredible examples hmm. of how people um know without knowing yeah um it, it you know that's i've i've not read extensively on this but it's i i think some some researchers have tried to suggest that that gut feeling is because there is actually perhaps brain tissue in our stomachs or that mm. um that there there is there's some kind of special link between our brain and our gut that that kind of gives mm. us this 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 just that that gut feeling um well i think there has been some research hasn't there that said that the because our gut how we digest mm. things yeah 
you know, really does affect every single process in the oh, body. Yeah. Lots of mm. people say that the gut is the first brain and that the brain yeah, is a that's it. Yeah. Brain. Yeah. 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 Which is mm. really, uh, really fascinating because yeah. there's also so much language mm. that is as- as- associated with our gut. I feel it in my gut. Yeah. You know, I was, I was sick to my stomach. Yeah. Mm. I, you know, I had, uh, yeah, I had the, this, mm. this, I just knew, you know, and, and. Well, that's like, it. it's sometimes when you trust people, you just kind of, you don't really have to think about it. You just kind of know. And that, that that's, mm. that's kind of what, um, uh, in, in terms of trying to validate the, these measures of implicit or automatically activated attitudes to try to kind of valid, you know, show some kind of positive relationship between these key pressing responses that, that people can kind of make and other, some, some kind of physiological um, uh, outcomes or th- things that we could kind of uh, mm-hmm. um, measure in the body that are going on at the same time. That would be um, that, that kind of mind body link would be really quite yeah. Um, uh, yeah, to, just to try to figure out how how is it working, and um, it be, yeah, again, um, it brings us back, and that would be incredible, yeah. wouldn't it? It's yeah. that which I think philosophers or psychologists, mm. early psychologists of all time, like Descartes, you know, yeah. all of all time have been thinking about this mind body connection. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, and that, that's something. I mean, the um, yeah, well. Different philosophies, you know, Eastern philosophies have kind of talked about, you know, mind, body, spirit link for for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, where kind of modern medicine has kind of gotten away from things like that because, well, we couldn't measure it objectively. Mm -hmm. Um, But now we're starting to embrace some of that maybe traditional knowledge or wisdom, um, maybe within Mm -hmm. a scientific paradigm because we have technology that is starting to allow those mm. types of things to be measured. So um, mm. it's, I think, quite an exciting time. In, in, yeah. In, yeah. It's a really exciting time, I think, because this, again, we've got this Western medical model, as, mm. which is very uh, data and scientifically kind of orientated. Yeah. And then you have a kind of more Eastern and esoteric and spiritual yeah. mm. Uh, model and I suppose it's the combination of the two which would yeah. be really fantastic and what you're talking about oh, now you know, yeah. how things are moving forward yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah. I guess kind of gets back to I guess what what I think uh what what do I think people are and I think we are more than the sum of our parts it's um yeah I don't know how it all works and how it all fits together but I I, I think we are more than the sum of our parts and um yeah, yeah. excellent thank you Calvin with that I think it's a really perfect oh. uh way to to end a fantastic yeah. conversation um we are more than the sum of our parts I I wholeheartedly yeah. Um, agree with that and um, and I would like to wholeheartedly thank you oh, I had a great um, time thank you for inviting yeah, me yeah no, thank you it's been such a fascinating conversation that we mm. and we've covered lots of we have yeah areas um, hopefully in a way that's really accessible to everyone yeah um, 
Yeah. And and if people want to know, I know you have no social media. What? What? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm I'm really bad on that. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure if people want to Google you, they'll be able to find you. Yeah. Um, Professor Calvin Burns. Yes. I'm on the University of Greenwich um, web page. So if you Google Calvin Burns University of Greenwich, I should pop up. Uh, yeah. I do have a Google Scholar page as well. So uh, we're, we're kind of uh, publications and things like that are listed with oh, well, university contact details. So well, yeah. fantastic. If you if you'd kindly supply me with that, I can put sure, that in the sure. show notes. Yeah. And um, and so if people want to look more at your research yeah. and also contact you, that yeah. uh, they'll be able to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just want to say thank you. What oh, yeah. a wonderful conversation it's yeah. been. Um, and I also want to thank all the wonderful listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you for um, joining me on the Perception Podcast. And please like and follow and share and subscribe and let me know what you think. And I look forward to speaking to you again uh, next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, Calvin. Okay, bye. bye.